Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about sort of clothes and stuff. Um, I'm joined today by my friend John. And John, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm I'm John Fowler. I am your your typical middle-aged man kind of style. I comes somewhere across between uh, James Robertson Justice of uh, Doctor in the House fame and the 1970s action man. I think that's pretty much where I sit stylistically. Somewhere stuck between the two of them. Right. Well, that does open it wide open. Um, the topics we're going to be talking about today are quite varied within a very narrow field. Uh, I thought we'd start off by talking a bit about British made everything. Where are you on that, John? Yeah, I, I've always been fairly passionate and excited about where things come from anyway. Uh, I guess I grew up in a farming background in the 70s and 80s where everything was made locally. You know, I grew up wearing barber jackets and my grandfather's old suits and hand-me-downs and, and original hunter wellies and handmade boots that had been made by cobblers in sort of Northampton factories. And I guess from that heritage, which is always big on menswear, I've always kind of wanted to know where things are made and by whom. I guess I'm very lucky and it's a privilege that I, I most of the new clothes I buy at least, I can track them down to the factory they've made in, if not even the person who's made them. And I think that's possibly a better way to be moving, obviously away from the fast fashion and the throwaway things into things that, you know, I'm still wearing my grandfather's clothes now, some of them well into a hundred years old, and they've been made well by craftspeople with great materials, and they're still holding up now and looking pretty good. It strikes me that you must have been pretty early with caring about this, or maybe it was a matter of case before where you sort of knew where things came from before it became a question of where they were made. I think that's I think it's definitely the case. I knew I just knew they were made by people, and I think that's become more important as I've become older and has become a choice. I think in your twenties, when you're trying to impress girls and looking around with fast cars and trying to look flash, it's not as important. But then you really, you know, why you're wearing something and where it's come from. That idea for me, I, I've always been obsessed with craft and the way things are made, anything at all, you know, from fiddling around making things in my shed personally to the things I buy. I've always been, you know, fascinated by the technology behind things, which is, you know, where I've come at with my clothing to a certain degree. I guess my style is fairly classic and that very male down the line, nothing too outrageous or outlandish, although people may disagree that some of my tweeds are a bit over the top and some of the technology and the technical clothing I wear with it is a little odd. Um, but yeah, I still, I'm quite keen to understand who made it, why they made it, what the purpose was for it. So it's that fabric function form. It's kind of, you, you have a purpose for an item of clothing, what it's made on, how well that works, which is ultimately why you have clothing. Do you make things uh, sort of clothing yourself? I have had a go. I am beyond terrible. Um, my grandmother taught me to knit at a young age. I've knitted some squares, and they don't even hold together particularly well as a scarf. I can darn a pair of socks. I can repair things and stick buttons on. But when I have actually tried to make anything more technical, uh, I would rather find someone who is skilled and very well trained. And I'm very lucky. I have a local tailor who I use quite a bit for repairing and fixing old bits and pieces that I find and resizing things. And it always amazes me at what they do. As long as I can give them a very strict guideline and instruction of how I want it done, they can pretty much do anything. So 
I guess I'm quite lazy that I haven't learned the skills. But yeah, I'm fascinated by people who have and how well they can do them. Do you think uh, knowing all this and realising your own failure at creating such items gives you a greater appreciation of those that actually can do it? I think I think so. I think it's people don't realise how hard it is to create something. I, you know, I bought a pair of beautiful William Lennon boots a few years ago and took them to a less than well-trained cobbler to repair them who utterly destroyed them i mean i mean took them apart and couldn't put them back together again because they weren't the sort of glued on nike soles that he'd been used to uh which caused me an absolute nightmare fortunately i sent them back to the lovely folk at william lennon and now i've got back a pair of boots which are pretty much the same as they were when i bought them but yeah just that even a trained person not having the skill in doing something is it's quite shocking and knowing enough i can ask for what i really want so when i've had suits repaired or you know buttons moved i can actually ask them for what i want which i think is quite important because if you you know i've asked for cuffs to be reduced the length of a sleeve they can quick quite easily do that by chopping it off folding it back and sewing it together but actually making sure it's still got the cuff that's functioning and the folds in it and the sort of stitching i want makes a huge difference to what you actually get in the end that's actually something I can relate strongly to because uh, I tend to have jackets that where the arms are too long and there is really no perfect way of shortening the arm of jackets. Um, you can take it in up at the shoulder, sort of moving the whole arm up, which tends to leave you with an arm that's too th- narrow, too thin, or you can uh, reduce the cuffs, which tends to sort of mess up things there. You know, like, totally. I've, I have to have a combination of the two. Um... I'm fairly big in the chest measurements, so I do get, particularly if I'm buying second-hand suits, to get something in a 46-ish chest when I'm only a 32 waist and I'm only 5 foot 10. Um, they're usually fairly huge, so they need a bit of altering on the waist and very often the sleeves, so yeah, it's something I get done quite regularly. You did mention your William Lennon boots. Now, to me, William Lennon is sort of one of the really, really typical family firms with a, an authentic history going back about 120 years now. Is that something you like about them? I absolutely love them. Um, they are one of my favourite companies. I now own four pairs of William Malone boots, and I have a fifth being made by them at the moment. They are it's, it's simple that they have made something traditionally for 120 years. that hasn't really changed. Um, as I, they joke about some of the staff are still the same people on those machines that have been there for 120 years. No, literally nothing has changed. And their boots simply work. I've got a pair of derby boots I can wear in town. I've got a pair of hobnails I wear yomping around the farm. I'm just having a pair of um, biker boots built, although I'm not a biker, but um, pretty much for the construction of having them for a day-to-day going out. I can also wear them about they can do what I want. They can, you know, as they are, I guess, kind of tailor-made to my requirements. They're slightly higher, slightly wider. Um, they have, I'm saying biker boots, they've actually got um, gear-changing pads on both shoes. I've got that not for gear-changing, but for opening gates when I'm out on dog walks. So, you know, they can they can tailor-make to my needs, but they haven't changed in 120 years because what they're doing 120 years ago was right. It's perfect. They don't seem to want to expand or go off and do anything particularly wild and wonderful. That that they're operating in a almost dreamlike manner. They've got enough staff to fulfil their orders. They don't want any more business. They're happy with their turnover. They just they've reached a sort of 
industrial utopia, which is you know something I can buy into. I think it's amazing. Well, it's it's quite uncanny how you're repeating my words on this because that's just how I normally describe them, um, down to the fact that there's still the original people working there, which well, is a vicious rumour, I'm sure. I think I think like the email about one of the members of staff who died, who'd been there for sixty odd years, and she died at nearly ninety after being Gosh. at the factory a week. I was kind of like, oh no, she's died. She made my boots. Good lord, how? So yeah, they, they have had staff there for a long time, and I think it's that. Another point I like about them is that their prices don't reflect the fact that they really are quite a rare company. Uh, their prices are more than reasonable. No, I, 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 I've often kind of kicked myself and under what wonder how they can do it. When they rebuilt my boots that had been destroyed by the local cobbler, they charged less than he charged for destroying them, and they came back absolutely brand new. There was, there was you know, they had a little bit of wear on the leather because I'd worn them for about four or five years. But they were amazing, and they did that for 50 quid. I mean, I, I can't get soles put on my work shoes for 50 quid locally. Yeah, I can send a pair of utterly destroyed boots to William Lennon, get them refurbished, resold, new hobnails in for that sort of price. It's, it's yeah, they're obviously doing something right. It's strange. It makes you wonder, how on earth is it possible? Or <laughs> why would they even want to do it? I, 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 I have, I've often wondered, it, 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 I don't know if it makes any economic sense, but obviously it does. I expect after 120 years of the factory and the, most of the equipment is sort of paid off. And uh, I mean, if not everyone wants to drive a Rolls Royce, then it's it's feasible. I guess that's, um, I guess the overheads of having everything that hasn't changed for that long is you know, small number of staff, a small number of employees. Nobody wants to become a millionaire or, or do anything wild yeah. over the top with it. Brilliant, brilliant, really. Are there any other companies we can think of that are similar? I don't think I can think of any that have the heritage. There are, there are, there are a few British clothing companies that I use fairly regularly and use a lot. Um, Old Town in Holt. My uh, homeland's in Norfolk. I, Marie and Will there are lovely, and I've been buying stuff from them for a good 20 years. Again, they haven't changed a great deal in what they do. I think they've expanded a lot, and I think they now have a very large Japanese market. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's again, it's just solid, dependable, heritage wear that I, I i you know wear every day this I've, i guess very similar with um north sea clothing their roll neck jumpers i pretty much live and die in roll neck jumpers throughout the winter yeah. they make them in england out of the same pattern the RAF, um, RAF and royal navy used over the last almost 100 years they hold together very well they're made in britain with british wool they do the job indeed because those north sea clothing in old town i mean they are Companies we tend to think of making heritage clothing now, but their own heritage isn't super long. But they've also not sort of tried to make up or buy a heritage, have they? No, which is which is kind of honourable. There, there is, and there are companies out there that are very much trading on either heritage they have and are pushing it the boundaries probably a little bit beyond where their heritage actually lies, or just have made up heritage. They, you know, they've they've picked racing drivers, explorers, etc., from the annals of British history over the last hundred years and, and stuck their name on something. And, and you kind of go, I'm, you know, I kind of buy into it because I admire Shackleton and, you know, Tenzing and, and all these great people that climbed mountains and drive cars and stuff. And it's, it's all very exciting boys own adventure stuff that 
you know, any man's quite into, but, but I just kind of go, you've only been around five years. You have no link to those people at all. They are just names. And that's slightly dubious, I think. There is definitely something a little bit questionable about it. Yeah. Um, I do very much admire a factory or a company that actually does have a continuous history, say going back 100, 200, 300 years. And there are those, you know, Cookson and Clegg, who make clothes for absolutely everybody, it seems, in, in the UK, have been around forever. Um, one of my passions, as you well know, uh, are military smocks and sort of the, the post-war adventure wear. And I've got bits that they made 70 years ago that I'm still wearing today, and they still contract manufacture pretty much those patterns for people today in different forms. It was quite strange because I visited them, uh, must be two, three years ago now, and underneath the benches where they cut their fabrics, they've got all these cardboard boxes sitting, which is all their reference clothing, stuff they made way back. And, and we were just pulling out a few of their army jackets and stuff, and it was just, wow, <laughs> would I like to take all those boxes home? Of course, it would fill, it fill like- a massive truck, but... Uh, yeah, it sounds a little bit on my shed. I'm, I've actually sit behind me. I've got an uh, old Edwardian case behind me which is literally rammed with the last hundred years worth of old military jackets and different styles from sort of dispatch riders jackets to mountaineering smocks to windproofs um which you know are are much coveted by collectors now and and much copied by many designers because that's one of the things isn't it there aren't really new designs as such coming up it's always let's dig into the vintage and see what we can find there i i, I think there's there's such a rich heritage i don't know if it's laziness or you know certainly some of these things the military jackets particularly they're, they're such perfect utilitarian bits of clothing there is very little you can change about them you know to improve them um maybe the move from some of the older fabrics to more modern technical fabrics if you're going to use them technically but you know a mountaineering smock from you know its conception in the second world war through to now is made on more or less the same pattern you know and it's been made by you know pretty much every designer over the last 10 years i can think of that's british made they've had one of their collections somewhere nigel corborn's made a living off it um keston hare uses them uh, like private whites had them um i I'm just trying to think of other British companies that have had them. You know, Yarmouth Oilskins just introduced a very nice one. Yeah, there you go. Yarmouth Oilskins again, another another great Norfolk company, my homeland. Um, yeah, they've they've done. I think they they seem to be you know because they are they're almost a perfect piece of clothing. They're suitable for any occasion, really. They just work. It's it's the ideal. It's kind of you know, it's where I I love to be. It's kind of you know I I've always had the. Slight issue of my two favourite things of the adventure wear and tweeds mixing together. You can probably wear a tweed suit with a smock and not look too odd. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it just works. I think you probably could, yeah. Um, I'm just sort of trying to visualise um, army field jackets. So the modern field jacket was introduced in 1943 with the M43. Yes. And then, then just seeing the sort of M43, 51, 65 and whatever was in between, you could see how that jacket was just improved, improved. Yeah, and I th- and, I, and everybody's, I, I can't think of a menswear company that haven't made a field jacket of some description. 
and they all take from those patterns and they you know tweak them a bit they tweak the fabrics whether it's a ripstop cotton a poly cotton a ventile you know i've seen them in silk i've seen them prints they you know it's it's a it's a you know perfect design almost i'm actually just seeing here i've got a waxed one by british millerin fabric who's it by um timothy everest just sat behind me here on the chair so yeah and i've also got a ventile one by timothy everest just behind him but yeah it's 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 the perfect jacket it, and again it works in the field you know it does what it was designed to do you can also wear it with a suit knocking around town and look the peaks the sort of m65 olive version has become a sort of menswear thing now the sort of pity umo um, suit and tie and then throw a cheeky field jacket over has become a sort of fashion thing now hasn't it yeah no totally and it and it does just work because you know it, it's it's tailored enough and structured enough as a jacket to work with tailoring and it's just very practical you know originally it had a hood in the collar so if you're it's absolutely bucketing down pull out a hood it's got enough pockets to cover everything in so uh, yeah you can pocket everything carry it around all shapes sizes designs people are making them as i said luxury wires out of silks and incredibly expensive fabrics and then all the way down to your cheap ripstop polycotton military version. So, yeah, they just do the job. Or even the Japanese-made total tool room uh, replicas oh, of the originals. Yeah, which, which amazed me. I, I've recently had to buy some uh, zips from Japan to replace on a 1940s flying suit. And, you know, there's a Japanese company that make exact replicas with the exact machinery to the exact size of 1940s Taylor Boynesy suits, which you just don't exist apart from this one little factory in Japan, which is very odd. <laughs> I'm sure they don't get that many requests for them either, because what you're talking about there is something kind of quite distinctive, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it's very neat. I've seen them on a few sort of, um, as you said, the, the Japanese manufacturer of, of sort of kind of reproducing a retro fit of old military gear. So I think there is a slight call for them, but you know, the quality and the workmanship behind making these exact replicas is unbelievable. You know, and I've, I've taken it to military fairs and I've used it in collect, talked about two collectors about it and they all just recognize it as a Taylor buoyancy suit that's been turned into a jacket. Was it all done period? No, it was all done over the last five years by me, my tailor, some little chap in a factory in Japan and a little bit of design work and, and chatting to some collectors who had an original one. So yeah, it's, 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 an, it's an odd labor of love. Because changing old, weird military items into more usable, functional items is, has something of a tradition, doesn't it? It does. And, and it's, it's one of the things, I, as you well know, and we've talked about it several times, Ventile. I discovered Ventile purely for, and because of my love of post-war adventure wear, I became a little bit of an obsessive collector of you know, the mountaineering, Arctic go everywhere, do everything, man of adventure clothing. Uh, and most of that was chopped up military clothing. So Ventile cotton flying suits, Ventile being a densely woven cotton, that's waterproof and wind, windproof. It's ideal to turn into climbing clothing and outers. So it happened relatively frequently in the 40s and 50s, most sort of period long distance cycling where anything for climbing was either military wear that was just designed by the military for those environments or military wear that was chopped up and turned into 
usable program. You know, fabric and, and building things back then was probably a little bit more tricky as well. There wasn't the massive choice, so it was the only thing they had. And they were very resourceful. I've got some amazing bits and pieces. So I've got field jackets made from flying suits, skiing jackets made from flying suits, um, jackets made from old parachute material, the liners from the heated liners from flying suits turned into work jackets and workwear. So yeah, it's one of the things I think, you know, coming from a farming family, I've seen photographs of my grandfather, his father and my father and and the the sort of brothers and uncles all wearing my grandfather's ex-military kit from the Second World War they chopped up to wear on the farm because it was cheap, practical, easy to get hold of. So yeah, uh, there's some interesting bits and pieces. I've, you know, I've probably got a little bit more obsessional about restoring it to almost period. So my one of my particular favourites, I chopped a Taylor buoyancy suit up into a skiing jacket after seeing one in a um, collection, which I now believe is owned by either Ralph Lauren or Nigel Colborn, who both collect this stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, they chopped a flying suit into a skiing jacket, so I thought I'd give it a go. So with some. Strict instructions for my tailor, a pair of scissors and uh, some rough drawings and a load of metalware from Japan. I've actually managed to achieve it, which is a quite a cool bit of kit. You did touch on one word when you were describing how your family used to wear these clothes, and that was the cheap. Because I imagine at one point in history, all this stuff was really cheap just after the Second World War, but maybe not so much now. It's absolutely insane um even in my lifetime i went to university in portsmouth in the late 90s and the royal navy were disposing of all their ventile dex mocks because they replaced with gore-tex or something that's slightly cheaper and more serviceable they were literally burning them on the docks every road sweeper gardener builder tramp student had a pair of ventile trousers and a ventile smock of course they're really practical and they were dirt cheap 10 pound for a pair of trousers 20 pound for the smock the last smock I saw sell on eBay was £820. The one a week before that went for just over £1,000. Desire for these things has gone insane. Uh, particularly the smocks and things. There seems to be a very strong collector's market at the moment for lots of the stuff I quite like, and it's pretty much priced me out of it. And that's partly due to the fashion demands. I think you know some of these items, because they are much coveted and taken on by designers people want the originals so there is a in the far east particularly i've sold items out there for frankly insane sums of money because people want the originals um so yeah it's it's a it's a, it's a changing feast the same you know when i was in my early teens denison smocks were all over every you know military shop up and down the country had them five ten pounds each chucking them out they now go for two three four hundred pounds without a stretch and it just seems to be there there is a desire for them i guess both military collectors but more so the fashion market so as fashion's changed the denison smock's been copied a lot over the last couple of years i know victoria beckham was doing one last season season before for some of about four and a half thousand pounds so um you know good lord she can sell one for four and a half thousand pounds you know mr smith on ebay can probably sell his for 500 without too much of a stretch yeah, and to consider that these were available in the hundreds of thousands not that many years ago. And then they were they were cheap bits of kit. They, you know, again talking about Cooks and Clegg, Cooks and Clegg made hundreds of them, thousands of them for every single soldier who went anywhere in a vaguely temperate climate and needed a you know, camouflage jacket. But they they um yeah, they're now coming around to being massively desirable. 
which is, you know, I, I quite like it. I think my collection is now quadrupled in value over the last couple of years, but um, I'm still keeping it all. That might actually be one of the better investments of our times. Yeah, completely by accident, which is quite nice, because I'm sure my house is now collapsed after COVID, and my car's you know, going downhill rapidly. So, uh, yeah, maybe if I you know, went through the archive of wardrobes and old cases, I've got stuff full of old military gear. I'm probably a millionaire by some of these terms. Which is kind of interesting, because that means that this category of menswear is increasing in value, whereas... A lot of the clothes people are buying these days, and I'm talking fast fashion, is with, it costs almost nothing to buy and is with totally without value the moment you exit the shop. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's obscene to be fair that you know they're spreading out the women's season to six seasons a year in some of these companies uh, and making things with such high qu- quantities of plastic in it they can't be recycled. They can't even be ragged and turned back into cotton because they've got so many petrochemicals in them. It's, it's a I, I I understand that culturally people need to you know show something. Our clothes are our armor. They're, they're the way we present ourselves, and people like to present themselves as you know wealthy, rich, successful, wonderful, fashionable people. And to do that cheaply, there is a desire with a lot of people to do that. Personally, I would rather spend five times as much, have something that lasts my entire lifetime, and is is classic and isn't going to change. Um, I, 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 it's something I've struggled with, and I, I've argued with many people with on the internet, and I've argued with many people in face to face. And you know, I, I think having two f- young children, we, you do struggle with buying things that aren't seasonal and quite cheap and disposable and fast fashion, um, which is quite sad. Uh, you know, I, I had a discussion the other day about the cost of a pair of jeans, for example. So you know, a fast fashion pair of jeans, ten fifteen pounds probably. Yeah. How much would it cost to make a pair of jeans in the UK? And we're looking, you know, cost of denim fabric, you know, regionally sourced denim fabric, so ethically sourced within Europe, so not, you know, sweatshop work. We're probably talking double the price of a pair of jeans just for the fabric before you put in the time to make it, the factory time, the labour, the wages, the hardware, the buttons, the marketing, the sales, the logistics. So, you know, a pair of jeans, realistically in this country, would be £120, something like that. Well, I think it's worthwhile looking at uh, community clothing because I'm pretty sure that theirs are a lot less than that. And they are made in the UK, um, probably Italian denim, um, but made at the Cooks and Clegg factory. Well, I've, I've, got um, of, I've got a pair of the chinos which are, and, and a sweatshirt, actually, which are very serviceable and, and, and do the job. So, yeah, I didn't know they did denim. Although I'm a slight, uh, as you know, yeah. I'm a slight denim obsessive, so um, I need the high weight Japanese stuff, really. But. Yeah, because they do a, a selvage uh, raw denim, twelve and a half ounce, made in Blackburn for seventy nine quid. There we go. That that's probably the cheapest pair of ethically made jeans you can get in this country. I imagine so. And I would, you know, wholeheartedly rather see people buy that and support everything that that stands for than ripping into Primark and buying five outfits for the same money. Definitely. That's incredibly cheap. And that also illustrates how reasonably things can be made in the UK if you don't have a massive markup needed because you have a huge organisation where yeah. that has to be paid for. No, and I think, you know, 
anywhere that there is that almost a direct from factory approach of selling, the costs come down dramatically because they have the supply chain, the markups, the you know, the backhanders to get your job your job lot of clothes into whatever fashion retailer is fairly high from what I understand. So you did say one interesting thing about um, paying more to buy clothes that you could wear for a long time. Now, a lot of people aren't really into the having a pair of trousers for the next 40 years. And I have discussed with people before where they said, oh, I'll buy this jacket now because I know that this is my taste now and I wear this forever. Yeah. But that might not be the case. But it's also worth considering that maybe you'd be fed up of it or didn't like it any longer, but then someone else might be able to use it. And that goes for kids' clothing as well. Right. I was, I, everything that I have in my wardrobe that I haven't bought from a factory or a source that I know is pretty much secondhand and from charity shops, I spend an inordinate amount of time tracing around charity shops, not only looking to the bargains of the stuff I collect, but pretty much everything I wear for work. 90% of my tweeds and suits are from charity shops. Nearly all my work shirts and ties are from charity shops. I have eight pairs of very nice um, church um, brogue shoes that I wear for work. Not one of those has come from anything other than a charity shop. Um, my kids' clothes go to charity shops. We buy them for charity shops. I guess with the kids' clothing as well, it's, we, it's you know we live in a fairly small village community, so there's a lot of swapping around. You know, school uniforms get handed down until they fall apart, literally from class to class. Um, and I think it's a very sensible way to go. You know, the, you know, you get something new that looks different. That's you know yours for a year or two. Moving on to somebody else. As I say, I I. Love a good charity shop. I love a good sale. Um, I've I've tried the kilo sales before, where you can buy clothes by weight. Um, they're an interesting phenomenon. There, there's a lot of stuff in there that is probably on the side of fast fashion. They're just trying to get rid of it before it is burnt or buried. Um, but there are one or two things in there that again can be fairly amazing. Again, the military wear in there. A lot of um, military wear from uh, your neck of the woods, so Norway, Scandinavia, Finland seems to dish out a lot of its military wear to kilo sales in the UK. That's kind of weird, but uh, okay. <laughs> There's obviously some logistic chain where some factory and ragging merchant in the UK has bought a lot of Scandi military wear in the last couple of years. Well, the military does generally get rid of a lot of stuff, yeah. and especially in Norway. They have downsized massively over the years now, so um, all sorts of gear is available. Yeah. <laughs> My I've got my I said my Matt Yarsons, my uh, M nineteen oh six jacket. That was a well, I've got three now. All have cost less than fifteen pounds and all have been from uh kilo sales. Good lord, because that's a huge investment. They yeah. go for several hundred pounds now. Yeah, exactly. So um that's that's something else that may uh, may keep me going on the internet if uh, my collection of clothing goes down. So yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, uh, yeah. I, I sing the praise of the charity shops. I think I think there is a slight issue in charity shops not doing themselves a favor in the fact they don't value things terribly well and don't price things responsibly or knowing the market and i you know that's no fault of theirs it's because they uh, unfortunately rely on old ladies as helpers who see marks and spencer's label and think oh marks and spencer's that's quality we'll make that quite expensive yet we'll ignore a huntsman savile row suit and put it down for 30 quid not realizing they've got a nine thousand pound suit and you know in the right channel, they would make a lot more money. So, you know, 
Well, there's, there's two sides to that, and uh, that is very well illustrated here in Norway because really in Norway we only have the Salvation Army and they have become super professional at charity shops and super professional at um, collecting all clothes gathered in Norway to one central location where it's uh, gone through and priced up. Now, they get about 30 metric tons a day, which is an insane amount. Uh, So their pickers do their best. Um, Clearly, they have a lot of Eastern European pickers because a lot of Eastern European brands find their way out into the shops, and they're pretty crummy. But the thing is, they have people who set prices who – think they know what things can sell for. Problem is, they're a bit optimistic. So they price things pretty high, especially if it's any sort of known brand. And the problem is then the shops just don't sell it because people want to bargain. We get exactly the same. It's a lot of of people will price, well, a lot of charity shops in the UK end up pricing the very obvious high street brands far too high and then miss out things that are amazing. I've you know, purely out of guilt, I, I paid for a Huntsman suit. I gave them, they asked £40 for it. I gave them 200 because I knew that suit knew would easily be £6,000. And it's kind of, you know, you, you've missed out a huge chunk of cash, you know, through lack of knowledge. But equally, I guess it's been donated. It's free. So they are making something. I've got a great bargain. I'm very happy. I've got a suit I can wear for work for the next five or ten years before I destroy it. Um but yeah, no, it's 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 something I've always kind of, and I, I know I've worked for two local charities who specialise in vintage menswear in two very niche charity shops, and I've worked with them valuing for a couple of years, and the stuff they've missed has been shocking, and the stuff they pick up on is equally interesting. Mm. But on the on the other hand, something that is priced low and is sold goes back into circulation, which That's to me is is true sustainability. If it doesn't get sold and it's burnt or put in a landfill or reclaimed fibres, that's a that's a big loss. No, totally. And it, it's, a, it's a loss on every sort of ecological, economic and, and, and common sense way. And I think that's, that's the real problem with the fast fashion stuff because you can't resell it because nobody will buy it. You can't even rag it, as we said, because petrochemicals in it is literally it's landfill or... or Kind of stuff that's going to get burnt so i don't know how we can change societal's views on that or, or you know as much as I, I spent a lot of time telling people to buy you know buy one thing that you love and, and wear it forever you know the old the adage about you know prison ladies having you know one or two nice things that they jazz up an outfit with and everything else is, is either cheaper or, or you know whether it's way to do it. I, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a huge magpie, so I can't really speak for myself. I have <laughs> wardrobes and wardrobes and chests full of stuff that's from charity shops and ragging and, and, and sales and absolutely everything else. So, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't have to buy another pair of anything for the rest of my life and I could easily be clothed. So I'm, I'm probably not the best example, but I think everything I've got has been made or sourced as ethically as it can. Uh, and it's generally stuff that is of a quality that will last me my lifetime. I know my, my son's getting a little bit bigger. He's starting to steal a few of the jackets and hats and uh, things for out and about and outdoorsy bits and pieces. So, yeah, I'm, you know, 
It's a clear case of do as I say, not as I do. Isn't I, don't, it? I think there's, there's definitely. I mean, I you know, I think you know, I, I wear my grandfather's and my father's clothes that were made locally for them back in whenever. And I think they'd be aghast to think how much stuff I've got because my grandfather had one coat, one suit, and wore the same pair of trousers for about thirty years that had string holding them up with a with a vest and a pair of braces because he was a farmer. He didn't have to look smart apart from he wore his one suit, which he bought in the fifties, and he wore all the way through until he was buried. So uh, yeah, yeah, I have one suit from my grandfather which I can wear when I'm on my sort of slimmest level. Um, so at least I have something. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I think it's a nice, a nice, nice thing to sort of hang your way through and down. I've got, you know, I've got bits and pieces. The reason I quite like wax jackets is that I used to wear all the wax jackets on the farm that all the farmers had worn, and everybody, you know, some had been sitting around there forever, and though they'd been around at least my lifetime when the farm was sold, um, and they just hung in the hallway, and everybody was more or less the same size. So you just walked in, and if it rained, you picked up the first wax jacket you came to, and put it on, and went out. And at the end of the day, you came back, hung it up, and that's how they lived. Yeah, um, there were a few things uh, I wanted to mention as offshoots of this. One of them was um, you mentioned the fact that um, so many of the fabrics used in the fast fashion now are are mixed uh, mixed fibres, because. I think uh, over 50% of the fibres used in clothes these days are polyester, i.e. oil-based. So that is a is actually a huge red flag. And uh, a lot of these um, clothes made with mixed fabrics, I mean, they just can't be recycled or used again as pure fibres. They are either burnt or landfill or they can be used, shredded and used as insulation. Okay, well, that's some vaguely good news, I guess. Yeah, well, I don't know how much of that sort of insulation will lead. I mean, if Norway alone is sort of getting about 30 metric tonnes a day, I mean, there has to be a massive market for that sort of insulation. I, know, that's, 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 I don't think uh, there is. No. No, I, I, I don't know. I, you know I, I don't know how it will change or what will change interestingly you know with brexit and the covid thing in britain being a very small island people are seeming to clamp down a little bit more and and you know i don't know if it will change people's attitude a little bit to both sourcing and buying locally and being more responsible and, and you know i think you know after being locked down for a few months people have realized they don't need their weekly saturday shop down at primark to buy their new sparkly top so they look like one of the kardashians when they go out that night for a 15 beers and then vomit in the cutter and come back and, and, and repeat each week. Um, maybe it's going to break that cycle. <laughs> I hope it will break that cycle. Um, I, I just don't see it, though. I, I went for my first haircut since January last week and walked into my local town, and it was absolutely heaving with people doing shopping during lockdown. You know, some masks, some unmasked, but still retail was seemingly doing very well, considering we've seen the loss of... You know, Brooks Brothers, TM Llewellyn, and all sorts of others over the last uh, few weeks. So, I don't know. I think uh, most reports claim that uh, business is back up to what it was or would have been expected to, if not better than before now. So, that, um, I think, well, from the amount of retail I saw going on when I was in Brighton, I can, I can, yeah, I agree with that. And people, well, I think, making up for lost time. There are a lot of people with sort of five, ten, fifteen carrier bags full of high street stuff. 
Mm. Well, there was a huge flare-up in interest in fast fashion. Was it two weeks ago when the Leicester factory workers were revealed to be earning less than minimum wage? Yeah, yeah I, 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 like, it was a it was a story that a couple of people broke, and you know, David Evans, Grey Flocks, yourself, and a couple of people mentioned it, and and, and Private White, and I kind of looked into it. I, I it, it just seemed phenomenal that one people were working for three pounds, three pounds fifty an hour, which you know isn't strictly speaking legal under the fear of the covid thing where people shouldn't really have been working anyway to a company the directors seem to be making quite a lot of money in bonuses supplying you know what is ultimately boohoo which seems to be you know a pretty innocuously awful selection of clothing i never heard of them until that and i had a look online and i was frankly aghast that people actually want it let alone bought it in numbers that they actually needed factories to buy it and make it it's so uh, it's pretty unbelievable um I got into a discussion with someone about who was who were these people actually working in the factory yes. for three pounds an hour. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any consensus on on why. I mean, people are saying why would they work for three pounds an hour? I imagine that it's because they can't get another job because you wouldn't willingly do that if you could earn eight fifty an hour. No, I think I think there was a big thing. It was, it was- discussion with you know sort of modern slavery was it you know people that were forced into factories and and it wasn't it was people who were working that you know may not have had the working knowledge to understand they shouldn't be earning that sort of money but it's it's shocking that you know in today in a society where you know there is so much information out there people can get away with it and and get away with it to a means of doing something that's not actually of any benefit to anybody it's, it's shocking on so many levels. I mean, the factory that are willing to pay them so little, but then you have companies like Boohoo who, I mean, they know what it costs to make stuff. They oh, yes. have people working out the sums and they know that the factory workers are not being paid properly, yet they're willing to do it. And, and, and that's, you know, I think it's more shocking that it happened in the UK, but we, you know, look at fast fashion around the world and I'm, I'm you know, sure that some of the child labour and you know, labour in the Far East and things and Europe is... You know, people go to wherever the cheapest labour is and the cheapest source material is, and that happens to be in places that have terrible human rights violations. So, you know, by default, you're kind of supporting that in buying fast fashion. And then, you know, in buying a lot of stuff where you can't understand or see where it's sourced. I did see somewhere that um, some analytics firm or other was saying that um, if people actually continued their trend now of buying secondhand um, items instead of fast fashion, we would see change pretty quickly. I can imagine that's the sort of language that Boohoo would understand. Yeah, and I think I I I think that is almost an idea. You know, I've seen with internet shopping on sort of secondhand sites and things. So looking at the combination of eBay, Grailed, uh, Vestiaire, and a couple of other, the um, Bebop and things like that, places where I buy secondhand clothes from, the increase in volumes of sales and prices things are going for over the lockdown period has been noticeable. And it really has. There seems to be people who are getting through, chunking through volumes they weren't before, and the prices of certain items, particularly the higher-end vintage pieces, has really gone up so maybe there is a moving trend in that and you know i although that's probably a, a fairly niche market and people outbidding each other having more time to do that than the masses moving away from high street and, and cheap fast fashion but i don't know 
Well, there, there is that fashion in vintage as well. I mean, um, I imagine at this moment there might be a, a whole lot of middle-aged men bidding frenetically on 80s bootcut jeans. Oh, I'm, I'm one of them. Shush, don't you remember? I, I'm desperate for that, you know, night. <laughs> Five, six, they were. Yeah, they're beautiful. It's a thing with a you know, Cuban heel. I'll be there. Makes me a couple of inches taller. The wife will be happy. It'll be great. Right. Well, I mean, that's a that's kind of a problem with the fashions in vintage and secondhand. Because when I was walking around in Oslo, now there's a few vintage places, and the sort of stuff they were stocking, it wasn't a cross section of everything from the last, say, fifty years or even seventy years. It was very much. You've got this stuff, this stuff, and this stuff from very noticeable periods, yeah. which is not really interesting at all because I'm not into sort of synthetic '90s uh, tracksuit tops. No, no, I, 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 the the move in the vintage market. You know, I, I am particularly passionate about the post-war climbing and outdoorsy stuff, and that's either dried up completely because it's or it isn't particularly in fashion anymore so it doesn't see but whereas the stuff i was wearing at university in the 1990s is now so fashionable it's um yeah an interesting thing i, I had one of my friend's daughters go to an ironic 90s night the other night and i went nothing ironic about the 90s i was and I realized, then i realized i was quite old and went, yeah okay you're pretending to have rays and listening to banana oh wasn't it funny and that's that's how we lived. And I kind of went, oh, actually, we probably did that in the seventies and eighties when I was. Yeah, it's, times are changing, and the same with the clothing. You know, the, the you know people who wanted thirties, forties, fifties stuff, it's dried up or is now ridiculously expensive, and it's collector's market. It's not something that seems to be worn as much, and uh, people, it's it's moving forward. You know, there is a big market now, as you said, in in sort of nineties sportswear and uh, nineties knitwear, which really I found very odd. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's moved, and fashion fashion does move. And you know, I think we all, and we said this before we're recording, really, that you know we get to a certain age and a certain style sensibility, and you kind of stick with it, and you want the same things, just slightly better or tweaked a little bit, as opposed to new crazy wild styles where you can dye your hair blue and um, I don't know, do something else. Although, um, I, although I have just found Paul Harden, which I've got slightly obsessed with, which you were going to ask me about. Yes, you have. Now, Paul Harden Shoemakers, brand I'd never heard about, which is which is quite amusing, really, because I thought I had pretty much heard about everything. But you sort of toss this out, and it's quite a bit different brand, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's something that I, I kind of accidentally bumped. Paul Harden lives not far from us and has a studio not far from us, and I've seen him wandering through the streets a few times and kind of went, there's a chap over there who looks a little bit like an 18th century tramp kind of the kind of kind of the clothes that your great great grandparents were buried in and but he looks good oddly and i don't know if that's that's an interesting dichotomy it looks it looks quite pleasant and he, i did a bit of research Sounds like a total contradiction but uh... <laughs> and i i i i, anyway, I, I googled it and looked at it and found there's, there's a huge cult behind all hard and shoemakers and a couple of other labels that make us clothing in a similar genre i guess and I, I just got slightly fascinated with it and then i started reading about the manufacturing processes and the man can make some clever things as for he he's an exquisite tailor he started off as a um shoemaker and cobbler uh, and did some odd things with burying leather for years in peat-based soil before he made his shoes with it and is, is very technically very talented uh and then he moved that to tailoring and his tailoring you know i've recently got a couple of bits from him and the tailoring is very, very good. It's very odd. 
it's possibly not the most wearable for everybody. Um, and it does look a little bit like something your great great grandparents might have died in. But equally, it works. He's done some he's some lovely fabrics. Um, I'm certainly now desperately trying to chase down a pair of his tweed trousers. You know, I like a pair of high waisted trousers with braces, and they they just seem to work. And I and it also kind of oddly works in my sensibilities of the 1930s farming gentleman and explorer. If you kind of died in your 1930s suit up a mountain, you probably look like a Paul Harden model. So um, yeah, it's it's a bizarre one. But it's also struck me that. The prices charged are different. Uh, it is. It is expensive. I think it's the, probably the the best way. Yeah. And yeah. and and it's silly hidden that there are very very few suppliers. There are not many items made. And it's I guess you know looking at a new price of a pair of trousers for a couple of thousand pounds, fairly blooming expensive, really. Um, even the second hand market things changing hands for. Well into the thousands, um, but yes, it, it, there seems to be a quite a cult um, a following uh, of him, and it seems to be sort of an art director, fashionista group of people, um, big in Japan, oddly, um, and his size and his sizings all over the shop. Um, so yeah, it's just trying to find out how it works and where it fits. The couple of pieces I've got, I've got a couple of jackets. Um, wildly different fit and size but really well made made in scotland um designed by a chap in brighton the fabric's all sourced within the uk pretty much so he's fox flannels which apparently he does some very weird things with to treat them to make them semi-waterproof and look like they're very old um but yeah it, i've just been slightly fascinated with um the, i guess the cult of the idea and that image and the manufacturing which seems as far as i can tell you know i've had a good pull about some of these jackets they are made exceptionally well, um, but made exceptionally well to look exceptionally old and worn out, which is <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah. I can sort of uh, see why it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah no, I was, I, I, my wife often jokes about, because with my COVID hair and my quite large beard, I, I she get jokes about me being a tramp in a suit when I go to work. And I, I literally do look like a tramp when I'm wearing Paul Harden, but also it fits nicely and it feels quite nice on. And, you know, this is, Looking at his trousers, they look like sort of trousers, you know, you can wear for the rest of your life. Fairly big and baggy with braces. You can sit in front of an open fire reading a reading a book, knocking back on a bottle of scotch with a couple of dogs and, and, and just, you know, happily wide away the hours in them. They look like something that's, you know, quite nice. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, he's obviously done a, a marketing stroke of genius here because I think – as a company, Paul Hahn doesn't do any sort of uh, promo, no interviews. Their website is rubbish. Yeah, it's just... It's, um, but he's, he's, he's got you doing the marketing for him now, visualising your perfect life. Yeah, which is which is, which is is really odd. And it's something I never really... You know, I, you know, with lots of the labels I buy into, I kind of buy into the British and the heritage, and I kind of go, yeah, that, that fits with my lifestyle. Whereas this, I've just kind of gone... I quite like to live in a in a battered old castle with a fire and some dogs wearing some slightly shabby tweeds and yeah and this seems to fit in with that look and I don't know if that is how other people have viewed it or have gone into it but yeah and also seeing the chap I actually tried to speak to him a few weeks ago and he completely denied who he was and pretty much told me to go away as he entered his flat that had his name on it to go to his studio and stuff. <laughs> Paul, are you Paul Hart? No, I'm not. Well, you are, because you're the only person dressed like an Edwardian tramp going in the studios marked Paul Harden. 
no, no, it's not me. And he just stormed off. And I kind of, oh. Apparently he does not like press or coverage or dealing with people. And, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And there seem to be, you know, a, f- a few other people who have been I don't, within that stylistic cult, I guess they, they are. And it's, it's an interesting group of people. So Eleanor Dawson, who worked with Paul Harden, um, John Skelton, um, and a few others, this company called By Walid, and I guess Comme de Garçon, some of their stuff. There, there, there seems to be this aesthetic that they all aspire to and bounce off, which is very much you know, almost 18th century peasant wear. It's, it's, an odd, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a very odd um, aesthetic, but I feel it quite appealing. Which is strange, considering it. You know, it's not my norm. You can sort of see, though, why he didn't appreciate being accosted by a forty-something guy with wild hair and a big beard, behaving like a K-pop fan. Yeah, that's that's, yeah, that's probably true. I did probably, I, you know, I I I some describe me as a as a as um wild what was it wild lockdown hair and a little bit like a terrifying tigger the other day and I went actually yeah, if you saw that coming towards you it's like kind of yeah it probably did run away poor chap but yeah came yeah. across as a bit keen maybe 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 a little bit of a yeah fanboy but um you know just, just keen to understand what you know I, I had a lot of questions and I guess I probably uh, came across as a bit of a nutter to be fair yeah and again I, I'm going to have to think a bit about what the what the attraction is of um, eighteen hundred uh, tramp wear might be. That's an interesting one. Um, well, that, that was the kind of thing, that, that was the question that sort of got me thinking about it because you know, in all aesthetics, you kind of like, yeah, you're looking like your great granny's corpse, but equally, it just kind of works. And, and as I said, everything's from what I've seen of his bits and pieces and the bits I've got, it's all exceptionally well made, constructed, thought out, fits very well. Although. As I said, the measurements are a little bit all over the shop. So um, I'm definitely a triple XL in most of his clothing, and I'm not that large. Um, so, yeah, it's, hmm. it's interesting. Uh, it could well be, though, that, uh, I mean, clothes uh, of that time period were constructed a lot more complicated and yes. better than clothing today. So it might not actually be that he's sort of making up or inventing something, but actually replicating very well actual clothing from the time. Well, certainly, if you look at you know the, the pell stitching and, and some of the, the some of the sort of um, double padding and things in the jackets and the way the bottoms of them are, are, are sewn, it is very much yeah of a period and done exceptionally well. And you know, even the, his buttons are sewn through the fabric and then into uh, leather back buttons to hold them all together. You know, things like that. It's it's of the time that the button holes, although I'm pretty sure are machined, almost look hand done. You know, the lapels are hand finished. It's it's you know it's very well made, um, but yeah, it's, it's just an interesting aesthetic. And um, this is, I actually came across Paul Harden completely by accident whilst um, following the Nest of Manure, oh, which that is, is a good good follow on Instagram. Yeah, which is which is beautiful follow on Instagram, and 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 apparently they are inspired almost wholly by Paul. So um, I kind of went, well, let's have a look at that, and it sort of bloomed a little bit into a slight yeah as a total nerd i also wonder who who in scotland actually makes this stuff for him yeah no that was that was my thing as well so i'm you know I'm, there's, there's always the uh, sort of factories that knock around in gala shields so i'm guessing there's there seems to be lots of makers in neck of the woods 
so yeah, aero leathers are there, so great leather wear. Um, there's a young lady who does lots of visible mending. I think she's got a bit of a thing going on there. So I think there's there's a definite maker culture around mm-hmm. there. And I'm guessing Paul Harden's things are made in very small numbers, so I don't think it's going to be sort of a mass factory. But, yeah. Mm. I, too, was trying to work out who made them because that's just the way my mind works. So, yeah. mm. We won't even mention his shoes. Well, the man started as a cobbler, and again, they they are fascinatingly well made. But I don't think I could wear them. No, I'm, I'm sure there are people that can, but they're a little bit, you know, trampy. For the men, trampy and, and and sort of psychopathic witchy for the women. I think is probably where where you go with it. It's something you imagine Hansel and Gretel's murderer wearing. They're not they're not quite right, but equally they're done very well. So the the they appeal in the fact you can see technically they're amazing but just not for me really i'll stick to a pair of trickers brogues that's it's good that we can agree that some things are not for us uh even though huge magpie tendencies oh and i see things all the time you know there's another label i've become slightly obsessed at looking at but i i couldn't ever wear and that's hamkus they're a chinese label and Another one I've not even heard of. Um, they, uh, I think they describe themselves as futuristic post-apocalyptic clothing. Right. Big in China, apparently. Um, but incredibly expensive and just, I kind of, I can see an appeal with the aesthetic as a whole. And again, I can see they are made technically very well. I can't imagine anything that, in their entire collection is actually wearable though. Unless you live in a post-apocalyptic Unless you're an extra Mad Max. Yeah, and then then you'd fit in perfectly. But it's it's just kind of like I you know, I, I kind of I want to see people wearing more directional stuff on the streets. I'd love to see twenty somethings knocking around looking like characters from Mad Max. It'd be excellent. It'd be much better than sort of a you know Lacquered Nike tracksuits and, and and weird bags, which seem to be the thing at the moment around here. But yeah, it's it's an odd. And that's the, that's the other thing coming. It's actually something that I almost mentioned earlier on about um, military wear. There seems to be a an aspect in youth culture where they're wearing um, bulletproof vests and rigging vests and um, sort of all the you know pouches and stuff from the military, which is weird. And Comme de Garçon did win it. A couple of seasons ago for a few thousand quid and i just went wow i can understand the practicals of wearing it but i i i think you might end up being a bit boogaloo alt-right nutter if you start wearing a bulletproof vest in the wonders of west sussex like i do but i can i can see the appeal the practical you know you can put things in them and you're out and about but some of that must have come about since banksy made uh, Stormzy's uh, bulletproof stab proof vest for some think, concert yeah i think there's, i think there's a definite youth culture movement in that there seems to be a lot of you know late teens early 20s particularly urbanly in the uk and i've seen it in, in certain parts of america wearing either you know i guess in america there is a gang culture and a bulletproof vest might actually serve its purpose but you know knocking around the housing estates of croydon is probably not quite the same death risk but there do seem to be you know old military rigging seems that all the smaller parts of military rigging seem to be now becoming a part of streetwear and that was something i was slightly fascinated with because it's something i've had in my collection from old climbing gear and i've just never won i wear that round town shopping i wear that to waitrose that'll come in handy 
Yeah, it's a, tr- it's a tricky one, though, because you can't really put together an outfit with too much military wear without looking like a lunatic. No, no, that's true. And it's something that, you know, I, you know, I, I'll happily wear a pair of combat trousers and, you know, boots. But I think then if you start wearing a combat jacket with it, you do look like a loon. And I've, I've tried to, I've always tried to find the happy medium between wearing, you know, country tweeds and vaguely normal bits and pieces and ex-military wear. And it's a hard thing to do actually, but it is, it is doable, but yeah. Yeah. I think the good looks lie in the mix, not in wearing, I mean, I find it weird wearing a three piece tweed suit, but tweed trousers with a great coat over works superbly. No, the thing is you can, you can go into the realms of dressing up a little bit too much. If you're doing one thing or the other too much. And, you know, I, 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 I wear a three piece tweed suit for work because I'm generally in an environment where wearing a, a suit's fairly new. I like tweed and I like three piece. You know, when I meet some of the younger doctors at work, I do occasionally look like a lunatic and they do just assume I'm a cons- an elderly consultant because I look like, you know, the turn of the century vet, look more James Herriot than a medical <laughs> salesperson. But um, I, I think, you know, if you, if you, if you, if I then overdid it a little bit more and started wearing like a, a you know tweed cap with the three piece tweed suit and you know everything else, it would look like I was doing some sort of terrible rendition of you know Warship Down or, or not Warship Down, uh, Wind in the Willows or some sort of. You could affect a really rural accent as well. Well, I, I am from Norfolk originally, so I've, I've lost that fortunately. Or I would actually sound like a loon as well as looking like. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's 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 yeah, it's it's an odd one. So yeah, I I've had people in towns shout at me things when i've been wearing full-on tweeds uh, assuming i'm sort of some either you know the local tory councillor or, or some landed gentry that's historically murdered their children or something but yeah it's, it's an odd one that that aesthetic is dying and i think you know it's been mentioned before the aesthetic of wearing the suit particularly for work is is coming out and i've seen it in my working life the last 20 years there are fewer and fewer people in suits and virtually nobody in three-piece suits these days. Although fads and fashions, they come back seasonally, um, which is which is odd because my uniform for the last twenty odd years of working life has been a suit. Weirdly, mine has never been a suit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't even have a suit as such. <clears throat> no, see that that's my staple in the show shop. I, 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 you know, when I'm at work from eight in the morning till six at night five days a week when I'm out and about, I'm pretty much in a suit of some description. Although even people doing the same role as me, it, it's, it's falling by the wayside. And there's lots more sort of a sports jackets and chinos and a sort of a sports collegiate American look coming in. And, you know, people don't seem to wear suits to the office at all. You know, dress down Friday is now dressed down all week. So mm. you know, whether it's the death of the suit completely, I don't know. Mm. I was just thinking that if you um, if you try to sort of mix up your heritage look a bit, you do run the risk of looking like you're off to a steampunk convention. There, there has been there have been occasions. One of my managers very famously asked me whether I was um, uh, wearing fancy dress once, and um, ouch. Yeah, I was like, no, no, you're wearing braces. That's nice. What hold my trousers up? That's, that's what I meant to do. It's not into the weird. Well, you know, coming from you and you very polyester router and outfit i take offense um but yeah no it's it's it, 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 i have on occasion looked a little bit too much like i'm in fancy dress and and i know my wife is uh, very keen on saying particularly if i've got weird facial hair at the time that you do look like you're an extra in whatever movie usually some yeah 
I, I sense that this is a topic in itself, which I'd like to save for a, for another okay. time. I could go on. Um, it's, it's, you know, have, am I a Peaky Blinder? No, I'm definitely not. But I do wear suits of that sort of period and occasionally have a moustache. But I think they're more yeah. complicated than me copying them. I, I think we've uh, I think we've just about used up our time now, uh, John. This has been uh, this has been great. So, um, well, thank you for your time and listening to my insane ramblings for the last hour or so. I don't know. Thanks a lot and uh, bye bye. And thanks, Lanik. Bye bye. And that was all for this week's episode of Gomology. Thanks to John Fowler, aka Heavy John, on um, Instagram for um, joining me. Um, I'm Nick Johannesson. You can find me on Instagram as Weldrestad. My blog is weldrestad.com. And if you'd like to uh, get in touch, send an email address to, you guessed it, weldrestad at gmail.com. Next week's uh, episode, I um, talk to um, Sophie Miller, the designer at Yarmouth Oilskins. That's going to be a good one, so uh, keep an eye out for it. I'd love it if you um, followed the podcast on whatever platform you normally use. Uh, Gomology is available on all of them and if you'd uh, give me a review or a rating that would be lovely thanks a lot and uh, catch you next time